I feel that this is important to say, but it probably goes without saying. We're talking about Dracula in this episode. Dracula was kind of a bad dude. He did a lot of nasty things to his enemies, but he's also known as a Wallachian hero. Um, But for those of you who aren't familiar with Dracula's exploits and why he's so famous, this episode is going to contain a lot of kind of disturbing content. And by kind of, I mean, it's really disturbing. Um, This is Halloween. So uh, just a disclaimer, just so you're aware of what you're getting into. And by all means, enjoy the episode. Summer, 1462, outskirts of Targovisht, modern-day southern Romania. Sultan Mehmed II, still riding a high from conquering the kingdoms of Serbia, Bulgaria, Thrace, and parts of Greece, had decided to turn his attention northward to the territory known as Wallachia. It was the natural choice, resting on the northern Bulgarian border, and after the fall of Bulgaria in the late 1300s, Expansion demanded the taking of the country before moving on to Hungary and Moldavia, both of which lay further north. Mehmed II had marched his soldiers across the Wallachian terrain for weeks before they caught sight of their quarry, one of the largest cities in the country, Targovisht. The Wallachians had taken notice of the Ottomans approaching their city and had launched a preemptive strike days earlier on their camp in the middle of the night, creating confusion and disarray among the Ottoman ranks, and infuriating Sultan Mehmed II. He had heard of the many exploits of the strange and terrifying man who governed Wallachia at the time, one they called Vlad Dracula, and aimed to oust him from his position to wrench the Wallachian people from their allegiance to the mythical ruler and bring their attention to the Ottoman cause. Now... With the night raid, the battle was personal. Sultan Mehmed II marched his army over the hills on the outskirts of the city, but suddenly received a strange message. A forest had sprung up outside the city overnight. Sultan Mehmed shrugged it off as some sort of misinformation, but the messenger insisted that it was true. They'd seen it with their own eyes. As the Ottomans reached the summit of the hill nearest to the city, they saw that indeed a shallow forest had sprouted among the city walls that no intelligence had reported previously. Sultan Mehmed marched his men onward, preparing for a fight before his ranks began freezing in their tracks. Again puzzled, and now annoyed at the sudden lack of professionalism in his army, Mehmed peered into the forest of curious twisted trees before his stomach lurched and he tasted bile. What he was looking at was no forest. Mehmed slowly inched forward to make sure his eyes were not deceiving him as his men began to cry in terror, before his deepest fears rose to blend with the reality that now rested before him. He realized at this moment that all the strange stories he'd heard about Vlad Dracula were true. Mehmed stood before a macabre palisade of stakes, driven deep into the ground and rising high into the sky, and on those stakes rested more than 20,000 human bodies, impaled and left to rot. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. As always, I am Tanner, and I'm going to be talking about some stuff that happened. It is October, and we're celebrating Halloween, for those of us who celebrate, uh, so I figured, why the heck not? Let's talk about Dracula. But Dracula is not exactly who we thought he was. 
and we are going to really dive into the story of Dracula. First of all, Dracula is a real person. He was a real guy who actually lived and had a bunch of crazy things that he did to create this persona that we associate with the name Dracula. But before we start, um, if you're unfamiliar with the podcast, uh, the concept of this podcast is that I... The concept of the podcast is, to me, that I don't think you need every single detail about something that happened. The purpose of creating this podcast was to create a general overview of all the things that happened, so when you go off into the world, you have just the basic information that you need to understand how this world is functioning, how everything ties together. So, um, how did Dracula come around? Let's investigate. Right before we start, though, um, remember... If you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and drop a five-star review and even write me something nice if you so desire. It really does get us more people uh, involved in talking about the conversations about history, and also it gives me a little positive ego boost. So, you know, why the heck not go do that? (laughs) All right, let's get into this. I've spent a long time researching this. You You would not believe how hard it is to track down Wallachian literature from the 15th century, but it is difficult, and I have done a lot of research in these last couple weeks. So, let's do this. So, we know Dracula. We know Dracula, the famous vampire made internationally feared with the release of Irish author Bram Stoker's novel by the same name. But who is the man behind the character, and more importantly, is Transylvania a real place? So to find these answers, we got to go back to sometime between the year 1428 and 1431, since exact dates are impossible to track down. Though, to answer the question of the existence of a real place called Transylvania, that is precisely where we're traveling to. Hang on, boys and girls. <laughs> I love doing that. All right, here we are, sometime between 1428 and 1431 in Transylvania, a part of modern-day Romania. Here we are. Yes, it is a real place and a lovely one at that, full of rolling hills, slow-moving rivers, and forests abounding. It's very nice. This is where the subject of our story likely has his start, though, again, it's hard to nail down exact facts here since 90% of complete medieval documents haven't survived and stuff. But what we do know about him is that he was born between 1428 and 1431 in Transylvania, which was then part of the Kingdom of Hungary, and he was born with the name Vlad Tepes fathered by Vlad III, member of a Wallachian royal bloodline and future voivode of Wallachia. It's time for our first definition of the day, voivode. What is a voivode? Well, a voivode is a Slavic title denoting a military leader or warlord in Central, Eastern, and Southern Europe since the early Middle Ages. He who was voivode presided over most or all military actions undertaken by the forces employed by a certain territory. It's very similar to a king because the warlords had most of the power in medieval settings. Think of pretty much when you hear voivode, Think about it as a king. That's basically what it was. No one knows for certain who Vlad Tepes' mother was, but all documents say that Vlad Tepes was a legitimate son, meaning that he was born in wedlock, though no documents ever name the mother. Vlad's father did have a first wife before he became ruler, but she has been unfortunately lost to history, as his second wife was much more prominent with him marrying her to get the throne and all. What little is known 
concerning Vlad Tepes' upbringing before the age of 10, and specifics are basically impossible to find, but the, the standards of Hungary and Wallachia at the time were mostly the same from household to household in terms of child raising. As a boy, Vlad was probably raised by the woman in his household, either his mother or otherwise, and likely learned the typical things, proper dress, proper etiquette, native language, etc., as well as how to stay physically fit, you know, like combat skills, consistent attendance of church, Vlad's father was a devout Catholic, and it's likely that Vlad followed suit, though it's possible that Vlad was baptized in an Orthodox church, as was customary for Wallachian royalty, the bloodline of which Vlad was part of. It is also likely that during his childhood, Vlad was already being prepared to inherit his father's legacy as he became voivode of Wallachia. This period of Vlad's life is where he inherited the moniker that he would be remembered by, now see, before Vlad's father became voivode, he was summoned to the Holy Roman Empire due to his royal blood to join an exclusive group of knights known as the Order of the Dragon. This was an elite organization designed with the sole purpose of defending Christian nations of Europe from heathen invaders, primarily the Ottomans, who were predominantly Muslim. Vlad's father would soon take on the name Vlad Dracul, meaning Vlad the Dragon, he passed the name on to his son, one which meant Little Dragon, and that name was Dracula. It is between the ages of 10 and 13 that we start to get a more documented history of newly christened Vlad Dracula and his younger brother, Radu, as they accompany their father to the Ottoman Empire, where their lives would change forever. Vlad Dracul, the father of the subject of our story, was a member of the leadership of Wallachia. How he got there is a story for another day, but Wallachia is a kingdom north of modern-day Bulgaria that took most of southern Romania. And in the 1400s, the Ottoman Empire was allocating most of its resources to expansion in the Balkan states. They'd already crushed Serbia and Bulgaria, and they needed a new foe. Rather than be conquered by the Ottomans, Wallachia had decided instead to become a vassal state. Definition number two of the day, vassal state. What is a vassal state? Well, a vassal state is any state that has a mutual obligation to a superior state or empire and a status similar to that of a vassal in the feudal system of medieval Europe. The obligations often included military support in exchange for certain privileges. Today, more common terms are puppet state, protectorate, client state, associated state, or satellite state. In taking this action, Wallachian leaders spared their public the wrath of the Ottomans, but gave up most of their autonomy. The Ottoman Empire now controlled most of their dealings with neighboring countries and decided who they could be friendly with, and Vlad's father, now voivode of Wallachia, happened to be the primary source of military dealings between the Ottomans and Wallachia. When the Ottomans had first come to Wallachia, Vlad's father had allowed them through peacefully and even participated in an incursion into Hungary with them. But after he witnessed how the Ottomans sacked the countryside and took thousands of prisoners, Vlad's father decided he wanted to try to stay peaceful in the future. He attempted to stabilize relations with the two and place something of a neutrality in their conflict. This behavior roused the suspicions of the Sultan of the Ottomans, and he summoned Vlad's father to his throne at Adrianople, now known as Edirne, to demonstrate his loyalty. Vlad's father brought two of his three sons with him, Radu and Vlad Dracula. In Adrianople, Vlad Dracul was able to convince the Sultan of his loyalty to the Ottomans, but the Sultan wanted to double down on his weak ally. He ordered Vlad Dracul to return to Wallachia, and he would make him prince of the kingdom. 
But in return, the Sultan was to keep his sons, young Radu and Vlad Dracula, for an indefinite amount of time. The message was clear. Betray me, and your sons die. Vlad Dracula was likely 12 or 13 at the time. There's very little documentation of Vlad and Radu's time in Adrianople, but what we do know is that the Sultan treated the two very well. They were, after all, now sons of a prince. It's very likely that the Sultan had every intention of sending the boys back to their home kingdom when they were of age to rule in a method sympathetic to the Ottomans. Because while they were in captivity, the boys learned to read, write, and speak fluent Turkish, they read the Muslim holy book, the Quran, cover to cover, and were taught mathematics and philosophy by Turkish tutors. But forever was the wrath of their captor looming over them. For four years, Radu and Vlad were the subject of the whims of Sultan Mehmed II. It's unlikely that they were ever tortured or otherwise abused physically by their guards, as they were pawns of a larger scheme and could not be endangered. See, Vlad Dracul their father, was still in control of the Wallachian military, and with tensions rising between the Ottomans and their new foes, Hungary and Moldavia in the north, Wallachia stood in between the three nations. And were the Wallachians to turn on the Ottomans, it's likely that the three combined forces could drive the Ottomans from their lovely new homes in Bulgaria. With Vlad Dracul's son safely under the thumb of Murad II, the Sultan, he could keep Wallachia from falling from his good graces. It is at this point that an interesting development takes place. Radu befriends the Sultan's son and heir to his throne, Mehmed II. Vlad Dracula does not. Remember that. Finally, after four years of imprisonment, the two boys, now likely well into adolescence, were allowed to return to Wallachia. But on their travel home, they received some devastating news. Angered by Vlad Dracul's inability to stand up to the tyranny of the Ottomans, the Kingdom of Hungary had invaded Wallachia, led by a man named John Hunyadi. In the brief war that followed, the Hungarians had attacked Vlad Dracul's palace, and in the ensuing fight, both their father and their eldest brother, Mircea, were killed. Their stepmother had fled the castle and was now in hiding. Her whereabouts were completely unknown. In technicality, the boys were now orphans, and according to Wallachian law, they were the rightful heirs to their father's power. But the Hungarians had different plans. Instead, they instituted Vlad's second cousin, Vladislav II, there's a lot of Vlads in these stories, who was sympathetic to Hungary as the new leader of Wallachia. Vladislav had fought with the Hungarians to seal his institution to the throne after the war, and it's possible that he oversaw the disposal of Vlad Dracul and Mircea to solidify his position on the throne. He knew that Vlad Dracula was the rightful heir to the throne, and as a contingency plan forced his cousin out of Wallachia altogether. Vlad Dracula and his brother, Radu, fled once again to Adrianople, where they spent some time recuperating and readjusting to their new reality, with no father, no older brother, betrayed by their cousin Vladislav, and robbed of their birthright. They were on their own. And they coped differently. Radu had been very young when he first arrived at Adrianople, and it had become home for him. He had befriended Mehmed II, and likely fallen into the good graces of the Sultan because of that. So upon his return to Adrianople, Radu may have accepted this as his new reality. This was his safe haven. Vlad Dracula, who I will now refer to as Dracula, did not share the sentiment. 
He was furious at the betrayal of the Hungarians, the murder of his father and older brother, and the illegitimate ruler who now sat on his rightful throne. Dracula began to plot his revenge. A revenge that would go down in history, in the nightmares of many, as one of the most brutal and complete retributions in history. We're going to get back to the story of Vlad Dracula in just a second, but before we do, a quick word from our sponsors. Okay, back to Dracula. Between 1448 and 1449, Vlad Dracula began planning a series of events that would bring him back to his rightful place on the throne, ousting his cousin who had stolen it from him and banished him from what was supposed to be his domain. Dracula knew he couldn't just walk into Wallachia and demand for the status quo to be altered in his favor. He would have to set up a few favors to cash in first. So, he traveled to Wallachia's northeastern neighbor, Moldavia. The current ruler of Moldavia, his name was Bogdan II, was also Dracula's uncle. Dracula's father had married a princess of Moldavia to establish friendly relations between the two countries and also secure his throne in Wallachia, so Bogdan II was more than happy to shelter Dracula in his court for the time being. So, Dracula stayed in Moldavia for about two years, no doubt searching for his moment to strike and nursing a bruised ego. Radu did not come with him. Radu stayed in Adrianople. But while in Moldavia, Dracula served in the Moldavian military and befriended Bogdan's son, Stephen. But just as Dracula was starting to settle into his routine in Moldavia, fortunes turned against him again. In 1451, Bogdan's illegitimate brother, Peter Aaron of Moldavia, who was a bastard son of Alexandru, had grown jealous of Bogdan. Remember, Bogdan was legitimate. Peter Aaron was not. So Bogdan got the throne. Peter Aaron did not. So Peter Aaron was jealous about this, and he made a lunge at the throne, murdering Bogdan, declaring himself the new voivode. And in doing this, he knew that Bogdan's son Stephen and his scheming cousin Dracula would be a constant thorn in his side, so he attempted to take them out too. Dracula and Stephen were able to flee to neighboring Hungary toward the end of 1451. And now, remember, Hungary was still under the rule of John Hunyadi, who had ordered Vladislav to take the throne from Vlad Dracul. Dracula and Stephen stayed in hiding for around nine months in Hungary. And during that time, John Hunyadi got sporadic intel regarding their whereabouts. He knew they were in Hungary. He knew they were in Hungary, and he knew they were in hiding, and he knew they were a threat. So he ended up sending more than one assassin after them, but Dracula and Stephen were able to slip through his fingers every time, moving from town to town like ghosts in the night. After nine months of hunting them, John Hunyadi decided to change his tactic. He had a better idea. Somehow, he was able to contact Dracula with a proposition. It turned out the past three years of leadership in Wallachia had not gone according to plan. Instead of hardening his stance against the Ottomans, Vladislav II had been remarkably soft in his foreign dealings with the Turks, and John Hunyadi invited Dracula to his palace to discuss some options. Despite his wariness and his, you know, fundamental distrust of John Hunyadi, Dracula's curiosity got the best of him, and he agreed to meet. John was straightforward with Dracula. He knew that Dracula had spent several years with the Turks against his will, and likely harbored as much of a dislike for them as he. Along with that, Vladislav II had stolen his throne and robbed him of his birthright. John's proposition went something like this. 
Dracula could have his freedom in Hungary, his own home, good food, a warm bed, etc., and in return, he would serve John in Hungary, leading an army in Transylvania until it was time to strike into Wallachia, where he would take his rightful place as king and institute a firm anti-Ottoman stance. I'm, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say I think it's safe to say that Dracula didn't need much convincing. Dracula gathered his forces in and in 1456 met with his cousin and close friend, Stephen of Moldavia, with an offer. If Stephen would assist Dracula in leading an army against Vladislav, and they would succeed in overthrowing him, Vlad would help Stephen lead an army to take his rightful place as king in Moldavia. The two friends would then stand with Hungary against the might of the Ottomans, creating an impenetrable barrier to northern Europe. The Ottomans would be powerless against their combined might. Stephen agreed. In 1456, Dracula led his Hungarian army against the armies of Vladislav II, and in a climactic battle, in the fury of a poetic justice, Vladislav II was killed at the hands of Dracula himself, avenging the deaths of his father and brother. Vlad III, Dracula, was then instituted as Voivode of Wallachia, taking his rightful place as ruler of the land. But his revenge was not yet complete. During his time in Hungary, Dracula had become distinctly aware of a deeply rooted system of corruption that existed in Wallachia. A group of ultra-wealthy, called the Boyars, had been long contributing to the leadership in Wallachia, though not in a positive way. The Boyars had grown extremely powerful in the last century, and were not keen of letting go of any of that power. Because of that, they were extremely corrupt and would often go out of their way to institute weak princes over the different territories in Wallachia where they would manipulate those rulers for their own gain. Dracula also learned that these boyars were not favored in Vlad Dracul's court and he was furious to learn that there was evidence to support the claim that they were instrumental in the overthrow and murder of Dracula's father and older brother. It was because of these boyars that Wallachia had grown weak in the eyes of its neighbors, and because of these boyars that Wallachian people were starving and destitute, and because of these boyars that Dracula's father was dead. Now that he was on the throne, he knew who to turn his attention to. Shortly after his coronation, Dracula invited 200 boyars and their wives to his palace for a feast, donning the guise of an appreciative ruler who would be more than happy to make their acquaintance. But once they were within the palace walls, the doors slammed shut. Dracula ordered for every one of the corrupt men to be seized along with their wives. He was about to make a name for himself that would resound throughout the land and make sure everyone knew that he meant business. Of the men and women who were able to work, he had his soldiers march into the mountains to begin work on an impenetrable mountain fortress that he had dreamed of. Of the old and sick, he took them outside the palace walls and personally oversaw the operation that ensued as his soldiers meticulously sharpened huge stakes stuck them into the ground, taking each of the boyars who had so deeply wronged Dracula and impaling them while they were still alive. Vlad had earned his new title, Vlad the Impaler. 
When the enslaved boyars had finished building his mountaintop fortress, Vlad dispatched the rest of them and filled their vacant seats in his government with former peasants and craftsmen who swore absolute loyalty to him and him only, earning him high praise from the populace of Wallachia. As promised, he rallied an army to send with his dear cousin Stephen to his native land of Moldavia, where they overthrew Peter Aaron and Stephen took his place. Dracula began immediately establishing friendly relations with the Moldavians and Hungarians, and even extended trade deals to the Ottomans, though he would not grant them the high taxes they so desired. Dracula was infamously tough on anyone who committed crimes under his rule, which created a more orderly society, and overall, Dracula was quickly well-liked by his people, and he enjoyed the position he had fought so hard for. But Sultan Mehmed II took notice of Dracula's interest in establishing friendly relations with Hungary and Moldavia, and was smart enough to read between the lines. He knew what Dracula was getting at here, and immediately sent two Ottoman envoys to Dracula's palace in Wallachia, to make sure he had an understanding of what was going on. The envoys were never heard from again. Now enjoying healthy relationships with Moldavia, where his cousin Stephen reigned, and Hungary, where his foe-turned-friend John Hunyadi was in control, Dracula turns his attention to subduing the long-oppressive Ottoman Empire. And in a matter of months, Dracula organized a new Wallachian army and invaded the Ottoman Empire, breaking his truce with them and carving a path of destruction across the recently acquired Bulgarian territory, burning villages and terrorizing residents. For Dracula... This was revenge. The Ottomans had kept him hostage, and he was showing the Sultan that he could not be controlled again. The Sultan responded with ferocity, leading a huge army to Dracula's capital city of Targovisht and camping outside the city limits for several nights. Dracula caught wind of this and, in the night, ordered his men to attack. They came among the Ottoman camp fighting like dragons, killing thousands of Ottomans, with Dracula himself seeking out the Sultan's tent with every intention of either killing or capturing him. While Dracula was unsuccessful in locating the Sultan's tent, the attack rattled the Ottoman forces, causing them to spend several days regrouping before their attack. In the meantime, Dracula had work to do. In a matter of days, Dracula rounded up all the prisoners of war from his recent incursions into the Ottoman Empire, as well as some of the leftover boyars who had evaded his purges and other criminals, and had his army systematically impale them outside the city walls, in a spot of land one mile long and one mile wide. It's estimated that there were as many as 20,000 bodies impaled in this small spot of land. Dracula had created what would never be forgotten in Wallachian history as the Forest of the Impaled. After they finished their work, Dracula had all the residents flee the city, leaving an empty carcass of a town for the Ottomans to find, along with their new forest. The Sultan approached the city walls, and as he realized what he was looking at, he turned with his army and fled Wallachia. The war was resolutely over just as it had begun, and the Wallachians and the Ottomans now had an understanding of one another. Or so Dracula thought. With the Ottoman threat neutralized, Dracula could now focus on rebuilding the land that his predecessors and the boyars had left destitute, which he did. In his reign, crime in the land was at an all-time low due to his strict and brutal punishments dealt to criminals. 
Because of his strong response to the Ottoman threat, merchants in Moldavia and Hungary were more willing to travel to Wallachia, strengthening the economy of the region. Yep, things were good in Wallachia. But a sudden change in fortune would blindside Dracula unlike anything he'd experienced up to this point. Unbeknownst to him, Dracula's younger brother Radu had been with the Sultan's army when it invaded Wallachia. And when the Ottomans had retreated, Radu had kept a detachment of soldiers in hiding in eastern Wallachia. Now, how was Radu here? Why was he here? Why was he with the Ottomans? Well, in his time in Adrianople, remember, Radu did not go with Dracula to Moldavia, and he did not go with Dracula to Hungary, and he did not go with Dracula back into Wallachia. He had stayed in Adrianople this whole time. And in this time, Radu had grown pretty fond of the Ottomans. He'd converted to Islam, and he'd been taught that Dracula was an evil ruler who needed to be deposed for the survival of the Ottomans. He'd been put in charge of a small band of Ottoman warriors who had stayed hidden for several years until his time came. At the same time, Turkish soldiers had found their way into the Moldavian military, even to the rank of advisor. And these advisors somehow convinced the voivode of Moldavia to attack a fortress held by Wallachian and Hungarian troops, which they did. The voivode leading the Moldavians, remember, it's Stephen II, Dracula's cousin, the very cousin Dracula had helped ascend to his coveted throne. Simultaneously, Radu saw this as an opportunity. Dracula was stunned and angry, and Radu had been a busy little bee building a web of informants across Wallachia. Radu knew that his older brother was not well-liked among the boyars, and he had been strengthening his resolve with their support during his time in hiding. And at his command, the boyars, like sleeper cells, rose against Dracula as one, delegitimizing his rule and declaring Radu the rightful ruler of Wallachia. Radu was able to convince much of Wallachia to join his fight against Dracula, despite Dracula's expulsion of the Ottomans and his various policies that strengthened the country. Radu capitalized on Dracula's brutal tactics and convinced the populace that he was evil. He eventually led an army against Dracula in the city of Targovisht, and in a climactic battle among the castle walls, in 1462, Dracula fled once again to Hungary. Defeated. He had been betrayed by his close cousin, Stephen, and the brother he had suffered through imprisonment with, Radu. Dracula was broken. Upon his arrival to Hungary, he found that rather than suffer through another war, Hungary had opted to recognize Radu as the new prince of Wallachia. When Dracula went to the new voivode of Hungary, Matthias Corvinus, an unfamiliar ruler, he assumed that Matthias would be an ally. Instead, Matthias imprisoned him. Dracula stayed imprisoned in Hungary for the next 12 years, and extremely little is known about his time there. Modern historians assume that rather than be stuck in a dingy prison cell, Dracula was likely under house arrest in the Hungarian royal palace. Well, it's not like he had anywhere else to go. Moldavia was now his enemy, the Ottomans were against him, and his own people had turned on him. Even the Hungarians who he'd sought refuge with had not offered the support he wanted. It's very likely that Dracula fell into a depression for the next 12 years, defeated at the hands of those he had trusted. But his fortunes were not resolutely sunken, not quite yet. In 1473, King Radu passed away, and the throne was taken by Basarab Leoda. 
You don't need to remember his name. It's not important. But as, as had become customary, anytime a throne was up for grabs, people tended to fight for it. So Hungary brokered a deal with Dracula. If Dracula was to convert to Catholicism, they'd allow him to lead an army back into Wallachia to take his rightful place on the throne once again. Dracula, unsurprisingly, agreed. But before he set on, out on his new mission, he paid a quick visit to Moldavia, where his cousin, Stephen, was still voivode. It had been 12 years, and Dracula had had a lot of time to think about this, and while we would expect Dracula to want revenge, the only evidence we have of the meeting is that the two decided to work together to retake Wallachia. It seems that Dracula was tiring of revenge. He only had one last war to wage. Reconciling with Stephen and backed up by Hungary, Dracula led an army of Hungarians and Moldavians back into Targovisht, where he overthrew Basarab in 1475 and retook the throne. Once again, Dracula was voivode of Wallachia. Unfortunately, this new rule was short-lived. Decades of factionization had taken its toll in Wallachia. Many Wallachians sided with Radu in his allegiance to the Ottomans, but others had a deep distrust of the Moldavians because they'd been betrayed, and others were against Hungarian support because they'd been betrayed. The land was fractured politically and ideologically, and Dracula could only attempt to try to assert control. And he was tired. He lived a grueling life, and it was beginning to show. Concerned for his cousin's safety, Stephen sent 200 Moldavian bodyguards to Dracula's palace as a safety precaution. But it wasn't enough. In 1476, Basarab Lyota returned to Wallachia with Ottoman support, and sometime before January of 1477, they attacked Targovisht, massacring all 200 of Dracula's bodyguards. In one final act of defiance, Dracula stood his ground and died going toe-to-toe with the Ottomans. Vlad the Impaler, Dracula, was no more. Dracula left behind a legacy unlike almost any other ruler in history. His stories of brutality against anyone who imposed him struck fear into the hearts of many across the land, and those same stories played a strange game of telephone as they spread through Europe, finally finding their ways to the ears of a man named Bram Stoker. The stories had become warped, and many Germanic people had begun telling stories of the man who drank the blood of his enemies in Wallachia. Brahm took a liking to these stories, and immortalized Vlad the Impaler in novel format in his 1897 novel, Dracula. Did Vlad ever drink the blood of his enemies? Honestly, probably not. But, maybe, but probably not. The conclusion of our story could be Dracula's death against the Ottomans, but I'm going to take this a step further. Remember Dracula's cousin Stephen? He's become a pretty integral part of the story. Well, Stephen was really distraught at the news of his cousin's death, perhaps blaming himself for helping to oust Dracula in the first place. He swore revenge on the Ottomans, and shortly after Dracula's death, Stephen led a force of 40,000 Moldavians against a horde of 100,000 Ottomans. He swore to avenge his fallen cousin, and Stephen III of Moldavia did exactly that. When the dust cleared, Stephen did have to take the bodies of 4,000 of his men from the field. The Ottomans, however, were forced to clean up ten times that amount, losing 40,000 men in battle. 
and Stephen wasn't done. He would go on to fight the Ottomans for many more years, desperately trying to avenge the death of his favorite cousin, Dracula. That's going to do it for the podcast today. Thank you all for joining in to the story of Vlad Dracula. It was such a pleasure to research the life of Dracula, and it was a lot of research to be done. Uh, extremely fascinating to research this. Again, if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and drop a five-star review. Tell people about the podcast. Tell people about the exciting things that we cover in this. This is a this is a cool story. I mean, we hear about Dracula and, you know, he impaled people and stuff, but the amount of family drama in this story was really fascinating. And I, I want to learn more about Eastern Europe and the Middle Ages because seems to be a lot of drama going on over there. So, uh, Maybe we'll see some more Eastern European episodes. Who knows? Thank you again for tuning in, and I will see you hopefully next week. Happy Halloween, everybody. Oh, and the election is coming up. Be sure to vote. It is important. Your voice matters. Catch you guys later.